I-94 is presented by Pilsen Community Books. More information is at pilsencommunitybooks.org. I-94 on Lumpen Radio. And a good morning. Welcome to everybody listening out there in Radio Land. Today is August 25th. It's a beautiful day here on the south side of Chicago. And you are tuned into Lumpen Radio, and this is I-94. My name is Mr. Jamie Trecker. As always, I am joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning. And Mr. Michael Sack. Morning, Jamie. And we are joined through the magic of the phone line to the author of a new book. It's called Apocalypse Any Day Now, Deep Underground with America's Doomsday Preppers. It is out from our own Chicago Review Press. We are joined by Mr. T. Krulos. T, are you with us? Yes, I am. Thanks for having me. Good morning. How you doing? I'm great. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for making the time this morning to chat with us about your new book. Oh, I'm glad to be here. So, Apocalypse Any Day Now is a collection of, is it fair for me to call them short essays about uh, the kind of apocalypse culture that currently exists in America? Because you don't talk just about preppers, or at least what we think of preppers. You, you do go to other groups, and you do have kind of a fairly uh, long history of how the apocalyptic movement has had actually long roots in America. Yeah, um, you're exactly right. It is more of essays. Uh, Preppers made it into the subtitle, because I think that's a real eye-grabbing word. Um, and I do talk to preppers, but kind of a loose theme is any sort of group or social idea that has something to do with the end of the world. Now, why do you think, I mean, apocalyptic thinking, as you, as you point out, has existed in this country almost since the country's inception. There are, are there religious roots to it. There are people that have predicted the end times using the Bible. Uh, and there have been a number of high-profile incidents of, of people trying to bring about uh, doomsday or, or, in fact, uh, bringing doomsday to their followers, such as the Heaven's Gate people. Why do you think this is such a, um, an idea with such longevity in this country? something that's like really part of our DNA. We have like this kind of long, violent history, and it seems like the, you know, the end of the world is right around the corner all the time. It feels like, it sort of feels like things are always getting worse, and that doomsday is coming. So, but yeah, it has a very long history. Um, towards the beginning of the book, I taught, I told the story of Father Miller and his followers, the Millerites. Mm -hmm. Yeah, do you want to tell us a little bit about the Millerites, T? Uh, I I had never heard of them, and I found that, uh, you know, it's at the beginning of the book quite fascinating. Can you share about what the Millerites were and what they did? Yeah, so um, this started in New England uh, in the 1800s, and Father Miller was a pretty simple farmer, but um, he became this religious leader with a huge following. And um, through studying other works, he came up with this uh, end date time. Um, and when that date passed, he, he came up with another end date time. And this time around, people were um, believed him very much. So, I mean, if you can imagine this, it was this, there was a large group of people who really thought the world was ending. So a lot of them sold all their possessions. Um, they stopped tending to their crops. Uh, they stopped going to school and stuff like that. And when that date rolled around, um, it was October 1843, uh, 
people would stand on the, the roofs of their houses, um, wanting to be closer to Jesus as he descended from the sky. That's a good place to be if you want to be close to Jesus, <laughs> right up there on the roof. <laughs> right. Uh, and the day became known as the Great Disappointment because um, nothing happened. But it's sort of a, a story that repeats itself over and over again. People are always predicting a specific date that the, the rapture is going to happen or the apocalypse. Uh, and it hasn't the, happened yet. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. There. Some of these uh, people... I was going to say guys, mostly men. I, I know there was one woman you discussed, but they use these um, somewhat complicated formulas based on biblical verse. Uh, this number yeah. equals that number. Yeah, Daniel 9 was uh, was the one mentioned in the book, I think. Yeah, Daniel 9 is the one um, where they talk about seven sevens of seven sevens, and it's kind of vague as to what that might mean, so... Yeah, it is a little vague. <laughs> Maybe Daniel just had a stutter. Maybe Daniel did have a stutter, yeah. We yeah. But people really bust out uh, the extra-large chalkboard to try to do the math on that one, and it, you know, led to interpretations that these sevens mean 700 years, or maybe they mean seven, 700 years. So uh, everyone tries to tackle that math problem, and it comes up with different dates. Well, it's interesting, you know, that you mentioned the Millerites. Uh, and, of course, I think the, the person Jeremy was referring to is a young woman. Uh, I believe her name was Rachel, and she predicted the end of the world in, what, 2016 or 2017? Yeah, it was a recent one. It was a more recent one. W- one of the things that fascinated me about that kind of history of our culture was that the Millerites and, and others came out of a large, uh, very agrarian relig- set of religious movements that happened in America in the 1800s. Uh, the Mormon Church, the Church of Latter-day Saints, came out of this, the Transcendentalist Movement. Um, and up until, you know, fairly recently, you could see Dr. Gene Scott on religious broadcasting in America. He's passed away, but he did pyramid numerology right on the air with the giant chalkboard you're talking about. So there, there was, there's more than just apocalypse going on here. There seems to be something in the very American soil that seems to embrace um, these kind of fairly out there, largely unsupported ideas, as long <laughs> as they're based on on some sort of biblical math. And I wondered if you could, in your, in your study and, and in talking with these people, was there a reason why that was so attractive? Was it because they were deeply religious people, or, or was it because it, it helped them, in a sense, make sense of what seems to be a chaotic world? You know, you said at the start that it does seem to, to many people like the society is getting worse as we go on, things are getting harder for people. Was, was that a way that people used to make sense of things, and, and as a result, then they felt kind of overconfident to choose an end-of-the-world day? Yeah, and I mean, one of the great things, you know, about America, of course, is uh, there's this American dream of having religious freedom. So um, you can create any religion you want, you know, and uh, it's still sort of a new place where you can uh, try out your new religion and find followers. Um, So I think that's, you know, from the beginning, that was a, a very American dream. And um, I think people feel very excited if they feel that they could be like a new prophet that is figuring out these end-time dates. Um, you know, so... 
Well, the the, the the book starts out with the, these religious prophecies, but you know, it quickly goes into other doomsday scenarios, and and I think one of the first ones was the artificial superintelligence takeover, mm-hmm. and uh, you fooled me on that chapter <laughs> with Rose. Um, can can you talk a little bit about Rose, who she is, was, and uh, maybe describe some of the physical physical interactions because I I. I couldn't quite picture you guys face to face. Did she have a face? <laughs> um, yeah. So, Rose, um, artificial superintelligence is something that people are concerned about because the technology on it is evolving pretty fast. It's not there yet, but I start off this chapter uh, with Rose. So I guess this is a spoiler, maybe. But um, I'm so, having. What would seem to be a, a chat with a friend, you know, um, at this a normal conversation. But Rose is an award-winning chatbot, so um, she was entered into a contest called the, the Turing Contest, um, where they try to see how long a chatbot can fool a person before the person realizes that it's not making sense and it's a robot. Um, so, uh, we have a conversation and yes, there's, it's just a a computer screen. There's a little illustration of her, you know, um, but other than that, it's just a a computer program. Gotcha. But the, the, the problem is that super artificial superintelligence is evolving so quickly that it's doing things like writing its own language to communicate with other computers that we don't understand. Um, I talked to someone from the Global Catastrophic Risk Institute. I love that organization name. That's pretty great. Um, <laughs> and he, he gave me the example of, let's say you have a super intelligent computer and you're playing chess, and the computer decides that the best way to win the game is to kill you. You know, it doesn't have, like, a moral compass. So... Uh, the threat is, you know, what computers are going to figure out on their own. It's almost like a, a Westworld scenario. I wanted to ask yeah. you, um, when you were, uh, if, when you were, I, I know you have a book coming out from Feral House, and, and we're all big fans. And yeah. um, did you ever uh, see paraphrase Apocalypse Culture one and two? Jamie and I were talking about. We talk about on the show a lot how in the nineties, like. Publishers like Feral House and others, and and all the zines and everything. You know, we got a lot of our information back then from from those type of publishers because we didn't have the web. And I, I was wondering if that had any influence on because this kind of this to me seems like a little bit like a continuation of those uh, those collections. Yeah, I was absolutely the same way. Um, you know, I was in my twenties before. Well, the internet existed, but I wasn't using it. So um, a lot of books and zines. Um, and yeah, uh, I, I did see the Apocalypse Culture um, books a long time ago. So yeah, the Lumpanics catalog was a was a key a key touchstone for anybody who was interested in in that kind of culture. And I'm just going to mention one guy's name. If you want to read about an absolute whack job, uh, check out Bo Gritz, G R I T Z. <clears throat> he was actually uh, uh, at that comp. What was that compound Ruby Ridge when they? Uh, oh right. Yeah, he was out there running around, and his uh, he was a colonel 
and he he was out running around with his. Was he Kentucky Colonel? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I think he was actually like a, a full on military colonel, but he was running around with his American flag, you know, protesting oh the government. But. Well, we we have some segments uh, from T's book, and I want to play one of them because it it tees up some questions that I'm I'm going to have for him. So, as always, our readings are done by uh, Ms. Shanna Van Volt, and today's music is provided, of course, by International Anthem. It is Crush Love, but this is a selection from Apocalypse Any Day Now by T. Krulos. We'll be back in a couple minutes after this reading. It used to be the number one American ideal was depending on yourself and not other people, James told me. I'd met up with him and his friend and prepper ally, Doug, at a cafe in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, called Paradigm Coffee and Music. They agreed to talk to me about the prepping lifestyle, but like most preppers, were extremely secretive, so they asked that I give them aliases and keep some other details off the record. Sheboygan is a city of just under 50,000 people and sits on Lake Michigan and is known as the bratwurst capital of the world and also the city of cheese, chairs, children, and churches. James had responded after I had put a message in a Facebook group called Wisconsin Preppers. They told me what the world was going to be like when the SHTF, when the SHTF, whatever it might be, nuclear attack, a breakdown of society, civil war, natural disaster, or whatever else, society will break down. There's going to be two groups, Doug explained, those who have and those who have not. Yep, and those that don't have are going to try and take from those who do, James added. You've got to be ready to defend what you have or you lose it all. People are going to die of starvation, disease. They're going to be killed for what they have. There's a can of beans. You can get killed over that if someone's starving. To better their odds of survival, preppers develop bug-out plans for when the SHTF. The plan will lead them from their homes to a shelter located in a remote area. This might be an underground bunker, an isolated cabin or farm, anywhere that gets away from the dangers of burning civilization. The city is not where you want to be, James told me. James and Doug are part of a small group of tight-knit families who have united to come up with contingencies for different SHTF scenarios. They have items stocked and plan to all bug out to a location where they can use their combined skills and resources to survive. They're extremely secretive about where that location is. We're not going to tell you where. It's not in town. We have multiple routes to get there. We have different ways of communicating, not just a smartphone that everyone carries, Doug explained. The radios that I have are in a metal box that's insulated with anti-static material, and it's grounded so you can shock it all day long and our radios are going to be fine. Plus we speak in code and our channels are in code, it's how we've practiced things. When it's clear that the S has HTF, Doug and James will load up their vehicles with supplies and grab bug out bags, backpack stuff with emergency food rations, medical supplies, tools and other items helpful for survival. Me and the members mapped out the city so we know how to get from point A to point B because the city is very easy to cut off, James said of the group's bug out planning. They can cut the city in half in five minutes. There's mapped out routes where we can get around any roadblock. Once they arrive with their families, they'll be joined by other members of the group and James and Doug are both confident it's a group of survivors. Every single person in our group has at least one member that's had one or multiple combat tours. I specialize in close quarter hand-to-hand combat, Doug said. I was in the infantry, James added. Another guy was in the Marines, another was an army officer. A large contingency of preppers have military experience. All the preppers I know are not anti-government. We're not forming a militia, we're just taking care of each other, James said. So if something does happen, we're going to have a chance to survive. 
And that was a selection from Apocalypse Any Day Now, Deep Underground with Americans Doomsday Preppers. And we're talking with the author of that book, uh, T. Krulos. T, I chose that segment uh, in particular for one reason, because it makes um, the people that you're speaking with in this segment seem very reasonable. Uh, and I, I think that as, as the chapter goes on, I don't want to say they become unreasonable because I don't think that's a fair way to put it, but I think more things kind of sneak into your narrative to kind of color why some of these people are doing it. But on its face, you know, the idea that people want to take care of their families is not an unreasonable thing at all. No, uh, I totally agree. And, you know, I kind of struggled a little bit working on this book because people would tell me things I'm like, yeah, I get it up until this point. I don't think it's unreasonable to learn some basic skills that a lot of people have lost, like how to fix their car or how to start a fire if you're, you know, on a hike and you, you break your leg or something, you know? Right. Those are all great skills to have. Uh, I think having some safety preparation, like some, you know, if there's, I live in Wisconsin here, if there's a terrible blizzard and I'm stuck in my house, and having some extra food and supplies is a good idea. But there always seems to be this line that they go over at some point. Yeah, that, that's kind of what I wanted to get to. It. Yeah, what, what yeah. was that line for you? Where, where was the moment when you said, this, is, this has gone from being kind of normal and sensible to, okay, WTF here? It, it usually is some degree of paranoia that I don't understand. And also, you know, um, I would say that I'm community orientated, you know? That's, yeah, Whereas that's a, a lot of a lot of prepper groups are very much like, it's going to be me and my loved ones, and we're going to bunk up with a bunch of guns, and if anyone tries to approach us, we're going to shoot them. That's just like not what my mindset is. That kind of ran throughout the book, this, this line between liberals and conservatives, and uh, yeah. and there's there's another essay in the book where you you went to visit the, these missile silos that uh, yeah <laughs> these like luxury condos for for rich doomsday people and yeah. and the guy who was showing you around w- went nuts on you at the end and and yeah. basically called you naive um, yeah, yeah. How, how, how did you respond how do you even respond to that I didn't I didn't have a chance to he ranted pretty much for like 40 minutes without even taking a breath. Can you give a little background on who the guy is? Sorry, just for listeners. Sure. Yeah. Um, so there's a chapter of my book. I was really excited. Um, a guy who built these doomsday survival condos agreed to give me and my friend Paul uh, a tour. So um, what he did was he spent millions of dollars um, bought an old Atlas missile silo uh, and converted it into an underground condo building. Um, and so uh, me and Paul drove out to Kansas, where this is located. It's in the middle of nowhere in a cornfield. Um, and he gave us this tour, and I was very impressed. You know, there's a swimming pool in this condo building and a little movie theater uh, and a bar, which is probably where I would be hanging out most of the time. <laughs> Um, and these nice little condos and, and everything. So the tour was going great. And I was like, um, okay, this is all very interesting technologically. You know, technology is really amazing. 
but then at the end of the tour, um, you know, we sat down in one of these lounge rooms, and he asked me if I had any questions. So we started talking uh, about some random stuff, and then uh, he mentioned he brought up North Korea, and I remember that when we were walking through the building, we went through a lounge area where Fox News was on. And this was the day that Trump was at the UN, uh, and this was before he had developed sort of a relationship with North North Korea. So he was at the UN, you know, talking very tough talk about how North Korea needs to watch themselves, or he's going to blow them up, and he has a bigger button than they do, and all that stuff. <laughs> ah, the good so, old days. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's been so much so, dumb things that have happened since then. It's yeah, like sure. such a long time ago. <laughs> so, you know, he he'd mentioned things on North Korea, and I was like, all right, I'm going to ask this guy a question. And I thought it was a pretty softball question. You know, I was like, don't you think it's dangerous, some of the rhetoric that Trump is trading with North, North Korea? And that just sparked something in him, and he went off. He went off on me, and it went you know, he started talking about North Korea and how dangerous they are, and um, somehow that led to ISIS, and he started talking about <laughs> ISIS, chopping people's heads off. And well, what he said that was interesting to me was, was he pegged you for some kind of stereotype in his head. He said, you, you and your people don't understand what we're dealing with. Yes. That's something I ran into um, pretty quickly, uh, early in the book, I talk about how, you know, I'm about to get started on this book, and I'm really excited about it. So I sign up for a prepper forum. Um, and oh, I yeah. Inter- yeah, yeah. <laughs> I introduce myself, and I say, hey, my name's T. I'm working on this book. I'm interested in uh, the prepper lifestyle. I want to learn more about it. And almost immediately, I start getting attacked on this forum, like minutes later, by people who are like, you're in the wrong place, buddy, and, you know, I can tell that they think that I'm this big city liberal, and I'm their enemy, and I'm the dishonest media, you know. Did you so. did you find ways to circumvent that, or is there really just no way? You just have to walk away? Um, what you have to do is keep trying to talk to people until you find um, people that are a little more reasonable, and you know, willing to talk to you and give you an interview. I gotta say, my favorite part of the missile silo condo was uh, you're, you're taking us on this tour. There's the pool, there's a THX theater, there's all kinds of food and water filtration systems, and then there's a library with bookshelves wall to wall and no books on them. Yeah, see, the, this was the weird thing about this missile silo was it was very solid and everything was in place. But it had this empty feeling like it wouldn't it wouldn't be ready to go. If you had to be there tomorrow, there is a library with hardly any books in it. Is there that preparation amazing... or is that just because that dude wasn't reading much? That's the, what my impression. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, but the other thing was they had this beautiful hydroponics center, you know, that was uh, they made in the old uh, missile control center. So he had all these giant tanks and and stuff, but it wasn't 
it wasn't set up. There was no plants growing. There was no tanks full of tilapia. Um, there was a few things in the building that just didn't seem like it was ready to go. That, that's interesting because I wonder if um, we actually have quite a large aquaponics and hydroponics facility here in, in our neighborhood in Chicago. It's called The Plant, and it, has, it took nearly 10 years to get going. Um, and in fact, Mike actually works over uh, in that same building. Um, but was the fact that there was nothing really ready to go in there indicative of poor planning? Or was there something else psychologically going on there? Because you would think that if you were really committed uh, and you'd spent millions of dollars, one's, one of the first things you do is actually have your food supply up and going. And throughout the book, I've noticed that um, there was a number of instances, the Mars One Project comes to mind, where... You know, some of the basics uh, weren't done at all. You know what I mean? And it, 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 made, it made you kind of wonder if, if people had such grand designs or, or such serious concerns, you know, legitimate serious concerns about the way the world was going and, and real deep fear that they were going to be blown up tomorrow. You would have thought that would have been the thing they did first. Yeah, and, you know, I think part of it is I almost feel like there's almost a fantasy element to it. Like, you know, you... Uh, Oh, we've done this thing, and we're we built this bunker, but they don't really—they're not like concerned enough about the world ending. That um, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. he, he built it, and it's a good show, but he's like, oh yeah, I'll get around to getting the hydroponics. Yeah, it's kind of like the people who who like, travel a lot and just check off the places they've been, but they can't really talk about anything they did there. Yeah, right. Exactly. I was thinking it was like survival LARPing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you yeah. LARPed? I've never LARPed. Well, that gets, I, 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 you know, we're, this interview's going very quickly, but I did want to bring up the Wastelanders. Um, I was obsessed with the Road Warrior when I was a kid. Um, I was a punk rocker in the 80s, and, you know, that was like before Mel Gibson went loony, so it was okay to wear a T-shirt with him on it. <laughs> and uh, Lord Humongous in particular, um you know, with his uh, stainless steel hockey mask and his uh, megaphone. And, and I, I love that movie. I've probably seen it a hundred times when I was a kid. We watched it repeatedly. But to me, the Wastelanders were kind of like, it was like a Mad Max uh, Burning Man party. Yeah. Um, and could you talk a little about the way, because like, I'm not into hippies. I would never want to go to Burning Man. But the Wastelanders seemed like it'd be a good time. And yeah. uh, can you give us you know, the little backstory on that, and then we can get into some questions. Yes. Uh, it was one of the, the best times of my life, I would say. Uh, <laughs> it was great. <laughs> I really want to go back. Um, I've been wanting to go back every year since I went, but I haven't had, had the chance to yet. But it's, um, yeah, it's like, I describe it as being like the burning man of the damned. Uh, you're walking, it feels like you're walking around in a live Mad Max movie. There's, um, about 3,000 some people that attend. They're all wearing costumes like they're, you know, uh, in a Mad Max movie or different dystopian characters from different, you know, different video games and books and movies. Um, and they set up this little village, sort of, made out of junk, mostly. Um, I liked, my favorite place to hang out there was the Wasteland Communication Corps where they had an actual FM radio that they set up just for this event in the desert, and it's FCC-sanctioned. 
They produce a daily newsletter, which um, I wrote some short articles for and was paid in bottle caps, which is the currency out there. And then they have uh, music playing pretty much throughout the whole weekend and a lot of fun things to do, like the Last Chance Casino, which is this casino made out of, like, you know, they have a roulette wheel that's made out of the old hubcap. And, and there's people are just partying and having a good time and cruising around the desert in there. There's a lot of gearheads that go there and make their own, like, Mad Max vehicles. Do you, tra- so. do you use bottle caps in the casino? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, and there's a lot of, you know, paying with bottle caps or bartering uh, for stuff out there. That's amazing. Well, we're going to return to this after a short break because we do have to remind folks of the people that make this radio station possible. And on that tip, you are listening to WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM. Coming out of the break, we're also going to have another reading from Apocalypse Any Day Now, Deep Underground with America's Doomsday Preppers. It's out now from Chicago Review Press, and we are speaking with T. Krulos. We'll be back after these messages and a short reading. If you enjoy listening to I-94 and other programs like this on Lumpen Radio, please consider becoming a member today. More information is at lumpenradio.com. I-94 is presented by Pilsen Community Books. More information is at pilsencommunitybooks.org. It was stifling hot in the unair-conditioned First Unitarian Society of Milwaukee on July 12, 2017. About 150 people were gathered in the church pews, fanning themselves with cardboard fans provided by the church, while an oscillating fan lurched back and forth. A man in the back of the room played a mournful song on a wooden flute. Soon, Dr. Guy McPherson, wearing a teal button-up shirt and brown slacks and sporting a mustache, took the pulpit, a wall of brass pipes and a pipe organ behind him. He was there to deliver a sermon of sorts, but not a Bible study. The hot, sticky room temperature adds a gravitas to his subject matter, abrupt climate change. I've been called a Dumas cult hero by the Washington Post, so thanks to all of you cult members for showing up, McPherson joked, adding that the New York Times had also labeled him a, quote, goofy professor, This hasn't always been part of his legacy. McPherson was a scientist and professor emeritus of natural resources, ecology, and evolutionary biology at the University of Arizona. He authored some publications, mundane compared to his recent work, with titles like Ecology and Management of North American Savannas and the Glossary of Fire Management Terms Used in the United States. But in 2011, McPherson walked away from all that to focus on what he calls, quote, near-term extinction caused by abrupt climate change. McPherson claims that his research has shown him that the end is happening soon, far faster than anyone on Earth is telling you, he said, and that there is absolutely nothing that can be done about it, so we should try to enjoy our short life left now. Imagine you are given a terminal diagnosis. What would you do, he asked his audience. He added, climate scientists are guilty of malpractice. Some of them have said it's bad. I'm here to tell you it's worse. It's not only worse, but, as McPherson made clear, completely hopeless. I'm accused routinely of not promoting hope, but I've never suggested inaction because I'm hope-free, he said. Later, he added, hope is a four-letter word. And in his book, Extinction Dialogues, How to Live with Death in Mind, co-authored with Carolyn Baker, it's mentioned he feels people are drugged by hopium, 
climate change is a predicament, not a problem, McPherson told the audience in the church in front of him. Problems have solutions. Predicaments do not. As he tried to convey this message, some in his congregation were audibly shocked and dismayed, some were amused or skeptical, and some were angry. McPherson was unclear on this doomsday timeline, but stressed that while it won't happen overnight, it will be an agonizing period of heat stroke, heat exhaustion, and starvation. In Extinction Dialogues, he says humans won't exist on Earth beyond the 2030s. We've triggered too many self-reinforcing feedback loops to prevent near-term extinction at our own hand, McPherson writes. But at the appearance at the Unitarian Church, McPherson seemed confident that in the 2030s was a liberal guess and that the end was much closer. He mentioned that the four-degree global temperature increase would be in the very near future. And at four degrees Celsius hotter, all we can talk about is human extinction, McPherson said from the pulpit, explaining that lethal temperatures would be upon us within four years and probably much sooner, could be as soon as fall or late summer. A couple audience members gasped at this information. If you think humans will adapt, think again, McPherson writes in his book. He cites a 2013 analysis by Malcolm Light, which suggests that the temperature of Earth's atmosphere will resemble that of Venus before 2100. Worse than the media are the mainstream scientists who minimize the message at every turn. Scientists almost invariably underplay climate impacts. In some cases, scientists are aggressively muzzled by their governments. McPherson added that he believes the Pentagon knows that environmental, economic, and other crises could provoke widespread public anger towards government and corporations. And welcome back. You are listening to WLPNLP Chicago. This is 105.5 FM, and you're listening to I-94. Today, we are discussing the new book, Apocalypse Any Day Now. Excuse me, Apocalypse Any Day Now. That's apparently tough for me to say. Deep Underground with America's Doomsday Preppers. It's by T. Krulos. It's out from the Chicago Review Press. And you just heard a segment of that book. It's actually from the ninth chapter of his book, The Sixth Extinction, as always read by Shanna Van Volt with music from Crush Love, courtesy of International Anthem. T, that was another one I picked because it's it's struck me as um, another example of something that is fairly reasonable to be concerned about growing climate change, but then takes kind of a radical left turn into kind of weirdness. Can you talk a little bit about uh, your take on this situation? Yeah, so that, that excerpt is great because I just remembered being in, in that church. A friend of mine had been like, hey, there's this guy talking about extreme climate change, and I had never heard of him. Uh, and I didn't really have time to research him before we went. We just, I mean, and this is a great experience sometimes. We just showed up, and I was like, wow, this guy is kind of far out there. Um, he was, and I've never seen someone, like, lose an audience as badly as he did. <laughs> because he was basically telling everyone that we're all going to, you know, die by being too hot within the next couple of years. Um, and the audience was not happy to hear this and, um, you know, was just vocally, like, not happy with the speaker. So he's a, in a, in an extreme example. But later in that same chapter, I talked to a climate scientist at UW-Madison, um, and he had a more reasonable take, I would say, that, uh, you know, climate change is something that, we should be taking seriously now to prevent uh, a slow death in the future. Um, and that's something that can be addressed, but uh, something that needs to be taken seriously. 
Yeah, I mean, this is interesting because, I mean, obviously, uh, especially with the way that our, our weather's been going, we've just had the hottest July ever again on record, and five of the hottest Julys ever on record are in the last five years. We're already seeing uh, melting ice, and we are seeing um, the greening of Greenland as well, as well as food and water shortages. So we, the climate change is real. But, and the purchase of Greenland. And um, well, we, well, we can only hope. Everything would be better if we could only purchase Greenland. You know my feelings on that. Um, but no, I mean, it, what's interesting is this This struck me as another situation where this is a very reasonable thing to be concerned about. You know, uh, you, know there, you, you are seeing uh, a lot of deleterious impacts from carbon dioxide buildup and man-made climate change. What do you, what happened to this guy, however, to make it go beyond, you know, we need to do something about this, and this is a very serious thing, to give up, we're all screwed, you're dead tomorrow? I mean, stuff like this is almost like a religious belief at times, too, you know? This is just the epiphany that he had that it's all over, and, you know, I he's very unclear about, like, what some of his sources are, like, he tried, when I was at the church, he tried to present um, some findings, but it just, I don't know that they were very credible. But, you know, he's kind of like the people crunching the numbers in Daniel 9. He's crunched the numbers of global warming and come up with this doomsday scenario where he's like, all right, everyone, just enjoy your last couple of years here on Earth before we all fry. Guess I don't have to worry about those alimony payments anymore. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing about this book. In every every story or this this topic, really, everybody's baseline philosophy comes out really quickly when yeah. you start talking about the end of the world. Well, and the other thing is too is, and this is something that occurs a lot when we discuss nonfiction is people can say anything and find resources for it online. You know, and it's it's a problem. It's a huge problem. Um, T, I'm actually a librarian, so you know I'm pretty good at figuring out legitimate sources. But I mean, this is a huge problem—not just in America, but the world—because you can find anything online. I mean, I could be like, you know, Jamie is a direct descendant of Godzilla, and I can probably find information on that online. I've seen that page. Yeah, and it's bad because it, they would have you believe that they're using sources, but if you look at your sources, you see it's an echo chamber of other people who don't use good sources. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, and this this brings up something that I actually wanted to get to, which was throughout this book, there seems to be a, uh, and I don't want to say it's a, a torrent, but there seems to be a common thread linking many of these disparate groups and believers together, which is the idea that they possess some knowledge which the rest of us don't have, yeah. and they're being fed by a completely different media ecosystem, which if you actually look at it, doesn't hold up to a lot of scrutiny. Right. Um, I mean, there is, if you had a Venn diagram, conspiracy theory certainly overlaps with a lot of... Uh, end-of-the-world type scenarios. Um, I talked about that a little bit in this book. Um, and, yeah, it's a, it's a feeling that there's this, and I mean, it's not untrue, I don't think, that there's this mass part of the population that's, um, you know, the sheeple that kind of go about their day-to-day -day life and they believe everything that they see on TV and they go shop at Walmart. We have a president that apparently believes everything he sees on a certain TV channel. 
Yeah, right, right. Unless they exactly. say something bad about him, of course. Sorry. <laughs> so there's this there's this kind of feeling that yeah we're like the enlightened underground group that's going to survive the apocalypse while everyone else who's unprepared is just going to die instantly. You know, earlier one of the earlier um, essays in the book called Apocalypse Apple Pie says about 3.7 million Americans classify themselves as preppers or survivalists, and uh, believe it or not people have found a way to make money off them. Uh, yeah. Can you can you talk a little bit about the prepper industry? Yeah, it's huge. Yeah, it's, it's monster. Huge. And it's largely, uh, it's very religious as well. It's, it's like the, the PTL club and stuff are selling the stuff, like Jim Baker, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Um, he sells it, like these buckets full of, like, mushy, uh, you know, MRE <laughs> food, um, survival food buckets. But yeah, one of the one of the fun experiences I had was I ended up going to two different prepper conventions. Um, one was in Richmond, Virginia, and one was uh, it wasn't in Chicago. It was in DeKalb, I think. It was it was um, somewhere in northern Illinois. That's, I remember that. But these are they're very entertaining. You just kind of walk around and do a lot of people watching, and you have vendors set up selling all sorts of gadgets that will help you after, you know, you're in survival times and um, lots of books, uh, food supplies, um, uh, furniture that have secret compartments in it that you can hide your guns in, you know, all sorts of... There's toys. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, stoves that will operate on plastic pellets and... You know, twelve and one survival tools, uh, and it's all um, you know pretty pricey stuff. So I can see if you had a shopping cart there and were walking around, you could easily rack up a couple thousand dollars uh, worth of stuff. Well, there was a woman that uh, you discussed in the book, and her name's escaping me. But was that one of the prepper thing? And she was her critique of it was like, "This is way too expensive. You can get it cheaper online." Oh, yeah, that was one of my friends from Zombie Squad. Yeah, yeah, happened yeah. to be at the same convention there as me. Um, and, yeah, she was complaining about the price. She wasn't impressed. But. No, it didn't seem like it. I kind of That was a pretty funny part of the book. I chuckled. When... It's, it's interesting. We actually had an author on the show several months ago, and we believe it was Megan O'Giblin, who wrote about her own family's experience growing up as a prepper. Um, her father had stocked the basement with thousands and thousands oh, of dollars right. <laughs> of, of MREs that he bought from the PTL club. And when Doomsday didn't come, they, they, had, were, to they had to eat it all. <laughs> they were forced to eat it. So they, they grew up. And what was interesting, she, she's from Michigan, I believe, which is where my, my wife is from. And she was comparing it to like a down market version of Schwann's, which is the kind of fast, uh, pre-prepared frozen food that many people in Michigan get delivered to their house still. Yeah, I remember talking about the mashed potatoes. Yeah, the ma- yeah. apparently it was awful. Well, I can tell yeah. you from experience yeah, that MREs good. are... Well, I don't think they make it anymore, but they used to have a chicken a la king MRE and, like, no one ate it. And, like, if you yeah. let... And so, you know, they would just be these... Once the box was empty, it would be all chicken a la king and then you just wouldn't eat. You just wouldn't eat? Yeah. Oh, dear. Yeah, they're, they're not great. They're not great. Um, you know, uh, something that I think, I don't know about you guys, but, uh, I kind of feel like if the world was ending, there might be a point where I would just want to die. You know, I don't think I would want to be holed up in a basement eating MREs 
you know, for no years books. and years. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, that's that's what's interesting, and that comes back to kind of the, the your opening paragraphs, and and I think it goes back to something you said earlier. Like, there's there's something there's it's very understandable that people want to take care of their families and their loved ones. That's that's completely realistic. But I think, as you mentioned, you know, when you get into this, we're going to form a bunker and we're going to shoot anybody that comes near our way. At the end of the world, that that seems like a very strange way to confront the end of the civilization you've known. That the, the way you, if there is a giant catastrophe, I would have hoped that people would band together and try to help each other, as opposed to yeah. uh, the instant reaction you have is that people are going to be clawing all over you as if you're in a zombie film. Well, that paradox of that, too, is a lot of these people are claim to be super religious and i don't think jesus would be out blasting people with an ar-15 when the world ended you know what i mean yeah. i'm pretty sure he wouldn't well, it's, <laughs> it's, it's funny you mentioned uh the zombie analogy because when t goes to hang out with the the, the zombie squad uh, those people are, are the most are the biggest proponents of community building having the opposite yeah. reaction um not fearing that it's going to be every man woman child for themselves can you can you talk about uh zombie con yeah, that was, you know, I had mentioned how I had some struggles connecting with preppers, um, but uh, that that was really, I was looking for a group where I could hang out with them and, and feel a little bit comfortable. So I think that was really a success story for me. Um, I found out about this group called Zombie Squad, which started in uh, St. Louis and has chapters all over the place now. Um, but I kind of stumbled across a local Milwaukee chapter here. So I went and met them, and I was like, oh, I, I kind of, I get this, and I like it. It was kind of like we were talking about. They um, believe in setting up some, uh, you know, basic training so you can learn skills. Um, and they kind of use zombies as a metaphor. So they don't believe that a zombie attack is actually going to happen but they think that if you think about that scenario, then you can learn some skills that will prepare you to survive, you know, a hurricane situation, a situation where there might be mass rioting, or, um, you know, any sort of disaster. So, uh, and they're very community-oriented. They do a lot of community projects, like food drives and blood drives, and um, workshops where they teach other people. Um, so I found their approach to be really kind of fun and refreshing. Um, and after I met them, I joined them. They have an annual conference called ZombieCon. And unlike most other places that will have a conference in a hotel ballroom or something, um, they hike up this mountain every year and, and camp out for a few days in the middle of uh, Missouri. Well, T, this, this interview's flown by. We only have a couple minutes left. But um, one of the things that you brought up, and it, it's, it's really interesting to me, uh, is the idea that <clears throat> people, people may have lost some of the ideas about how to do things on their own. And I think that's something that is a current that underruns this book. But very few of the people, uh, unfortunately, you talk about in this book, with the exception of the people who are at ZombieCon, actually seem to want to help people gain those skills back um i am continually amazed by people that don't know how to grow food in a garden or don't know how to fix their car or don't know how to do basic maintenance that that is something we we seem to have lost that's me well but uh 
it seems that some of this is a is a tremendous overreaction to that, and I wondered if you could just close with some thoughts on that. Uh, an overreaction to the idea of the world ending. You mean? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Uh, you know what I tell people a lot is that I think that you should be prepared. I think that you should try to, um, you know, have an emergency plan. Um, try to learn some basic skills, but I don't think it's something. There's something called doomer fatigue uh, that uh, Prepper had used. That's when you're like worried about the world ending all the time. And a lot of this stuff, uh, to be quite frank, is uh, really out of our control. So I don't think that you're doing yourself a service by getting extremely upset thinking about the world ending. You know, you just kind of, you do have to kind of live your life. You can prepare a little bit, but don't let it overwhelm you, you know. I'm glad you said that, too, because so many people, I I hear people say all the time, like, you know, I just, I don't want to get out of bed, you know, because Trump's president and all these things are happening. There's a lot of good stuff in the world still. And, yeah, you know, Trump sucks and he's a bad guy. But, you know, there's a lot of good things out there. I mean, we live in a fantastic city. It's a beautiful day today. You know, the Sox are in town. There's so much, you know, to look forward to. And I'm usually the naysayer on the show but like there's a lot of good things in the world and it's kind of and this stuff is just it's fascinating to me because like i like to sit in my yard and read with my dogs that that's a good morning for me so this is really weird optimistic jeremy (laughs) we have been speaking with t krulos he is the author of apocalypse any day now deep underground with america's doomsday preppers it is out from chicago review press you can get more information about this book at chicagoreviewpress.com t's been talking to us i think from milwaukee today is that correct milwaukee wisconsin that's right, yeah. Well, Thanks, T. Thank you Thanks so, so much, much for making us. And as always in this show, we're going to give T the last word. We're going to close with a final reading once again. Thanks to Shanna Van Volt. Thanks to International Anthem. This is T on the Mars One Project, which, uh, as many things in his book tell you, is not probably going to go the way that they think it's going to. <laughs> T, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Critics have called Mars One everything from being too ambitious to being a scam. One factor that makes the program ripe for criticism is their plan to do major fundraising by filming and packaging the astronaut selection and training process as a reality TV show. Imagine Big Brother goes to space, complete with a vote from the home audience. It's this emphasis on showbiz and an unclear plan of overcoming scientific challenges that has opened Mars One up to blasts of criticism. One online commenter on the Mars One Facebook page even jeered the participants as not trained astronauts, but actornauts. Mars is an incredibly harsh environment to survive in, one that will eventually have to be terraformed, artificially changed to be more like Earth's atmosphere. Since Mars' atmosphere is 95% carbon dioxide and 100 times thinner than Earth's, a warm day might get up to 20 degrees Celsius, 68 degrees Fahrenheit, near the Mars equator, but the average temperature is negative 60 degrees Celsius, negative 76 degrees Fahrenheit. And then there's the radioactive solar flares and dust storms which can blanket the planet for months. Critics, including scientists and the media, say the technology simply will not develop sufficiently to match the Mars One timeline. Mars One torn to shreds in MIT debate, reported IFLScience.com. The report covers a debate between Bas Landorp and one of his key technical people against two scientists at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in a debate titled is Mars One feasible? The scientists' examination of Landsdorp's plan led them to believe the Mars One astronauts would all be dead within 68 days. 
you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone in the space industry who thinks they can do what they've claimed. They lack any of the technology needed to send humans to Mars, including a heavy-lifting rocket, spacecraft, habitat, life support systems, the list goes on, and have shown no shred of development since they burst onto the scene in 2010, IFL Science reports. Other critics have included Business Insider, which published an article titled, Mars One Plan is Totally Delusional, and especially harsh criticism from Gizmodo.com, whose articles on the program include, Mars One is Broke, Disorganized and Sketchy as Hell, and Mars One is Still Completely Full of It. Both publications argue that the program's estimated $6 billion budget is way too low, but even this too low budget is a long way from being met. As of this writing, Mars One's attempts at fundraising have gotten them nowhere near the $6 billion mark, and no reality show deal has panned out. The program lacks the technology to get to Mars, let alone sustain human life there. When I brought up the lack of funding and unrealistic budget and timeline as dinner conversation with R. Daniel, Yari, and Sarah, they seemed unfazed by the armchair critics. Anyone that has ever worked in anything knows that every project in the history of mankind has gone over budget and over the original timeline, but they still get done, and when they get done, they are considered a success if they perform as intended, Sarah said. So there's critics that say that this budget and timeline is absolutely ridiculous, but even if it takes longer than expected or costs more, it's still a good thing if it happens. And having an aggressive timeline and an aggressive budget is a way to keep the amount of time and money you're spending under control. is Lumpen Radio's books and literature program, airing every Sunday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured Taya Krulos, author of Apocalypse Any Day Now, out now from the Chicago Review Press. This episode originally aired on August 25th, 2019. I-94 is a Lumpen Radio production, with readings by Shannon Van Bolt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit EYE94.org. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com.